Thank you, Janae. If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 56. I'm actually planning to look at Psalm 56 and 57, but 57 is, uh, well, I guess you'd call it the conclusion. Not preaching on that, just going to, I believe, if the time permits, read that as an end to the sermon. Psalm 56, I've entitled it, Fight, Flee, Freeze, or Faith. I don't know, I think I've mentioned this before, maybe you remember, maybe you don't, maybe you've heard this, but all of us were built, have built in us a instinct that when we're afraid, when something overwhelms us, we do one of three things. We either get in a stance and we're going to fight. It's what you do when somebody criticizes you. You want to fight them. You, you, it's like, hold it, you, you, did, you said that about me, you, you said that of me, you're accusing me, and the first thing that happens, and I don't care how holy you think you are or how, how righteous you are, we tend to do one of these th- things first. Okay, I didn't say you carry it out, but that's where we want to go. Somebody says something nasty, somebody criticizes, somebody uh, busts on your family, somebody tells you something negative, the first thing you want to do. Somebody threatens you. you. We tend to go in. Our adrenaline kicks up. Second thing that might happen is we're like, whoa, that really is overwhelming. I'm out of here. And we want to flee. It's like, just get out of it. It's so big that we don't know what to do. We don't think we stand a chance. And we want to run and hide. The third thing is we just go into the solid state. Our feet won't move, our hands won't move, our mouth doesn't move, and our brain doesn't work. It, we just go down into the freeze mode. And the colder you get, you know what it's like outside when it really gets cold. You don't even feel like moving, even though that'd be the best thing to do. You just kind of freeze. Well, that's what happens. Fear is always triumphed by faith. These are natural reactions. And they're not always wrong. If somebody is threatening, threatening your life or the life of your family members or the life of someone that's a friend of yours, fighting for them, not a bad thing. It's a righteous fight. Sometimes when danger presents itself, the best thing to do is to flee. Often say that there are a number of things in the New Testament that are very clearly labeled as flee from this. Flee from the love of money. Flee from youthful lust. Flee idolatry. Flee immorality. It says, look for the nearest exit sign. Get out of there and get out of there fast. Don't linger one second longer. Don't spend one dime more. Just get out of there because you know it's overwhelming. So there is a place for that. And sometimes... Doing nothing is still the right thing to do because we recognize that any decision we would make at that moment would probably be a bad one because our emotions and our thoughts are so jumbled that any decision we make is probably going to be a bad one and you're going to regret it later. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, fear either controls us or we, by the power of God, begin to take 
control over the fear. And that is not because you're such a great person or you go to a great church or you have a great spouse or a great family or any of those things. It's because there's a God who you can trust. One of the key words we're going to look at today is the word trust alongside of fear. Is you, as I said before, faith always triumphs over fear. Fear always ultimately, if not dealt with by faith, will overwhelm you, will drag you down, will make you pretty much worthless when it comes to serving the Lord and even being there for other people, even having a positive effect on the lives around you and your own life itself. Now, there are plenty of things in this world today to be overwhelmed by. So point number one is going to be, Lord, I'm overwhelmed. Now, I don't think I'm going to tell you anything you haven't seen before. If you've looked around, there are houses in foreclosure all over the place. The government's got its hand out to hand out what they don't have, and uh, that never works. Uh, that would be like you being in debt and saying, you know what, I want to get more debt so I can get out of debt. It does not work. And you can feel like that little guy with the, with the dollar sign there, you can feel like money has got you imprisoned. I think that's what that's supposed to mean. Anyway, that's what I wanted to mean this morning. You can feel like a prisoner of the economy, of the dollar, of whatever else. And you can live in fear if you choose. It can be that you look around and you say, wow, I don't understand what in the world is going on in this life. Uh, everything seems to be. There are storms and you think back and you say, I don't remember anything this bad. I don't remember the hurricanes being this bad. I don't remember the attacks on American soil. I don't remember any of those things from a long time ago. And some of us in this service have been around longer than the average person here at this church. You know, I don't, I don't remember. Things are getting worse. We live in uncertain times. And then it can be teenagers. I'm not recommending this book. I actually looked at some excerpts from the book. It was actually, it's not a Christian book, but I saw it and I said, yeah, surviving the teenagers. It is like they know everything and we know nothing. And I'm telling you, there are things out there. Uh, one of these days I'm going to do a, um, an update for old folks. That includes anybody that's not a teenager of what they have at their disposal that can get them in trouble so fast. Things that you had to go looking for are now at the click of a button or the flip open of, a, of a, a phone with everything you can think of it in there from the Internet. They can get anything from around the world on a phone. They can send it anywhere they want. They can talk to whoever else is willing to talk to them. It's absolutely, if you haven't been around, you're not up to that. And I am not. I just know because I have to deal with it. I'm getting myself there occasionally. But it's just really, really, really scary these days. How do I survive this? How, how, do, how do I handle where the technology is moving faster than my brain will allow? How do I deal with that in this world? And then there are the marriage problems. People that just don't get along. Families, uh, parents, mothers and dads. Husbands and wives who aren't working together. It's overwhelming. I can tell you that in the last few years, I've dealt with more of this than the other 20 years put together. 
That's just the, just the way it is. I don't know why. I know one thing. There is a war going on. That war is huge. Now, this here is there. I'm going to let it there for a couple of seconds because that's my illustration for this first point. Let's look at what the scripture says. It says uh, that, it says, Lord, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For there are many who fight proudly against me. All day long they distort my words. Their thoughts are against me for <clears throat> excuse me, evil. They attack. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. David, here in this psalm, is recounting what happened when Saul turned against him. Understand, he is Saul's right-hand man. He's as close to Saul as you can get. Remember, Saul is having problems with a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare, and he comes in, he plays his harp, and Saul is well. He's refreshed. He's back in his right mind again. Saul has battles to fight. Who does he send out? He sends out David. He did that before Goliath, and he did it after Goliath. This is the man that uh, the passage that this comes from in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It says, they have sung about Saul's thousands, but David's ten thousands that he's defeated. This guy is not some slouch. He is not someone who has not known victory. He is not someone that Saul could not have trusted and depended upon and been willing to give his toughest assignments to. Because he's been there personally as well as for the whole country on Saul's behalf. And now Saul has turned on him. And if you remember the story, you'll find out that Jonathan and Saul were bosom buddies. And they found out and uh, they made a pact. And Jonathan said, Paul, uh, David, get out of here. Go. Because it's not safe for you to be here. But go in safety. Get out of here. And... Uh, Lord, watch between me and the descendants from David from here out. Because at that point, Saul didn't know would he ever see his friend again. He just didn't know. Would he ever be able to come back into society again? And so he's running. And what he did is he ran first to the priest. He had nothing to go. He went there. And uh, you can find the New Testament version of this in Matthew chapter 12. Because he went to the priest and he said, Hey, do you have anything here to eat? My journey is urgent. The king sent me. That was a lie. But uh, the king did send him. But not on a, an official business for the king. He is on the, on the run. He comes to the priest at uh, Nob and he says, hey, look, do you have anything to eat? And he says, we don't have anything to eat except the bread of the presence. That is the showbread that was in the tabernacle itself. He said, um, and that was only for the priest to eat after it was taken back off the table. But he said, that's good. Can you give it to me? And he did. And if you'll remember in the New Testament, uh, Jesus's um, critics were saying, hold it. Your disciples are going through the grain field on the Sabbath day, and uh, they are plucking grains, uh, kernels of grain off the th heads of the wheat, and they're eating it. That's illegal for them to do. That's against the law. And he said, don't you remember what happened to David? The bread was just for the priests, but it was okay for David to do that. 
What he's telling them is there's something even greater than the law. That's what he gets back to saying is there's someone here that's above and beyond the law. The Sabbath was, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. There's something even greater. That's the one we trust. That's the one we go to when we're afraid. That's the one when we're hungry and cold and lonely and feel like the world has just overwhelmed us. He's the one that we can go to and let our troubles there. And so, uh, if you remember, David had no weapon with him because he left in a hurry. And he said, do you have any weapons? And he said, the only one we have, we have it hidden back here. It's the sword of, Gol- uh, yeah, the sword of Goliath. He says, I'll take it. There's none like it. There's no other. Remember, that was the one that had been used, if you remember the story correctly, David just had a sling, and he had his stick, his his staff, but he didn't have a sword. And so he just ran up, he hit him in the head with the stone, knocked him down. It says it killed him. Then it says he took out the sword and killed him. I don't know which one killed him, but I know which one finished him off. (laughs) He was down, and he lost his head with his own sword. That's the sword that's there. I don't know if they cleaned it up. I don't know if it still looked like the battle. But he said, there's none like it. He said, okay, give it to me. And he gave it to him. And where does he go? He goes off to Gath, to the Philistines, to to the, um, the king there whose name was Achish. And he goes there to hide out. And that's when they say, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And David um, <clears throat> was afraid when the Philistines start talking like that. They're like, uh-oh, they know who I am, and I don't have a good reputation because some of those tens of thousands were those guys. And so he becomes afraid. This is when this is written. So you get the picture here. He's now afraid. He is doing, up to this point, he's doing everything right. He's doing everything right, and now the full impact of being shunned from the kingdom, of being pursued by Saul, of being separated from his best friend, of being exiled from the country, hits its mark, and it's so overwhelming. And what does he do? Act in faith? Not in this case. It says here, so he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let saliva run down into his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man behaving like a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I not lack madmen that you have brought this one to act as a madman in my presence? So this one came into my house. And at that point, he's now running scared. He is afraid, and he takes off, and he goes and lives in a cave. And as he's in that cave, it says that all the rest of the people who were living in distress, for whatever reason, the people who were overwhelmed came to David. He had uh, a really, really different kind of following. Everybody that was down and out, They might have been debtors. Their economic situation may have gone downhill. They may have been in trouble with the law and were on the run. We don't know. They've been so poor they didn't know what to do. They came and joined David. They were a motley crew. Somebody told me a long time ago when they started coming to to Garden Chapel, they said, 
We think we're going to keep coming to, uh, to Garden Chapel because, well, you're a motley crew. All that meant was it's not one big family of, you know, everybody has a last name or it's not all people who are rich or all people who are this or that. We just come from all kinds, young and old and every color, you, you name it. We're, we're just a motley crew, a whole bunch of people stuck together around something that matters, and that's the one we have faith in. Truth is, that's who followed David. He was their leader. And in the midst of that, he's simply overwhelmed. And the scripture says here, man has trampled on me, oppressed me. They're fighting proudly against me. They are taking what I said and distorting it, twisting my words. They are thinking evil for me. They attack straight up. They, they just want to pick a fight with me. It says they lurk. They're waiting, they're hiding to ambush me. They're trying to do me in. That's what they're trying to do. I got to get out of there. And he starts out in fear. He says, they watch my steps. They've waited for me. They watched for my life, which means he knew that if he's not careful, he loses his life. And believe me, Saul had the manpower and the will to do that. A number of years ago, my illustration here. Uh, I'm going to compare life with the 1962 Nova 2 station wagon. Now, believe me, that's an old rattle trap tin can. I bought it, it had a six cylinder engine in it. It conked out as soon after I got it, and I put a big V8 in it. I had it there. I didn't go buy it, I put it in. And my wife would joke as we would go on a highway on an on ramp, I would stomp it down. And it would twist the car. And I thought, wow, these things were made junky. And this engine's got a fairly good amount of power. She said, one day we're going to be going down here with a steering wheel and seats. Now, she didn't know. She's not a mechanic. She didn't know that what she was talking about was actually literally happening underneath the car. The frame, the subframe on the front was actually detaching from the unibody. There was a big crack around it. Buddy and I crawled under it one day because we were talking and I'm going, what? You know, and I knew at that point it's done. So I pulled the engine and transmission and all that stuff back out to save it for the next piece of junk I had back then. And I was going to get rid of it. And my father-in-law came along and said, we're tearing the barn down that was over there. I'm going to take all the metal from the roof. I'm going to take it to Abrams Junkyard. And if you want, I said, can you take my car with too? He says, Sure pushed it out of the garage, and he took his bulldozer, and he just started smashing that car down. I mean, this car didn't do anything wrong. It just got smashed because it was at the end. And he did. He just took it and pounded it down until it was about this high. And he told me he would load it up and take it to the junkyard with all the rest of the stuff he was going to do. So I came home, and I thanked him for taking my car away because ah, I did. He said, ah, I wasn't worth my trip. He said, I just dug a hole and buried it, in case anybody knows my father-in-law, he has a very long history of doing this. Uh, there was a bus right out here when we built the church. We had to dig back out of the ground. But he buried it. My neighbor's swimming pool is now on top of all the roof from the barn and a 62 Nova 2 station wagon. It's there. But I got to tell you, that car got smashed, and it got buried, and it was oppressed. And it was overwhelmed by that big old bulldozer and the ground that's now on top of it. David said, that's what I feel like. 
I feel like that old station wagon. I tell you what, I'm not too sure that there aren't people here that feel that way. You just feel that. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything. It could be people, family, health, loss. It doesn't matter what it is. You can feel that you just got smashed and buried. David understood. And God understood. But he says this. You don't need to be under the whole thing. Because you're not a car. And this world is not your end. And physical outward things are not the end of ends. Because in the midst of that, I know, I know that in the overwhelming circumstances of life, I have more than the normal options to fight, to flee, to freeze. I can operate by faith because there's a God who is bigger than all the circumstances. I can depend on God. And the next part of our sermon here looks ahead. Look at verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. That's a future. He says, I will do that. Why am I going to do that? Verse 4 says, uh, In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. He is looking at this because God has a past record because he understood what God did. See, David didn't stay in Gath. He didn't stay with the Philistines. He didn't stay in the cave because he came to grips with who his Savior was, who was bigger than Saul, bigger than the Philistines, bigger than the oppression. He saw that. There is a trust, a track record that God has. His record, his reputation, his character. It shows that there's nothing that's too hard for us to deal with. Point B under this is because God is greater than men. Look at the end of verse 4. I shall not be afraid what mere man can do to me. This is flesh. The best that the earth has to offer. The strongest. You say, well, animals are stronger than we are, but we can outsmart them because we can think and we can do a lot of other things. We can make uh, whatever we need, a bigger gun to shoot them or a stronger cage to protect ourselves or whatever it happens to be. The truth is, there is a God who is greater than anything that a man can do. What mere man can do to me... Can they do things to you? You better believe it. And they can do some really dastardly things. Some really horrible things. Some real, really bad things. They can do those to us. But God is greater than that. I can trust Him. I shall not be afraid. Notice he started verse 3. When I am afraid. And then verse 4. I shall not be afraid. But just a third point under this, because God is going to judge them. Because of the wicked, cast them forth. There's verse 7. Because of the wicked, cast them forth. Put in anger, put down the peoples, O God. Not too terribly long ago, a guy named Bernie Madoff ripped off people for $50 billion. I guess next to the government spending money they don't have. This guy is pretty good at it. And um, he had a Ponzi scheme. If you don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, you start out by promising people things you cannot 
possibly pay back. But you do pay the original people back because you get more people to get in on the scheme. And so the original people get paid back, in some cases double what they put in, and they become your best advertisement. Just like in any business, your best advertisement is satisfied customer. So they put money in, and they got money back, and they said, wow, this guy's good. And so more people put it in. Well, Ponzi scheme will always collapse eventually because, and, and that little pyramid thing there on the, uh, the black and white one simply says that by the time you get 11 generations down, you now have to have every person in the United States in on the scheme to keep it going, and when you get two more ranks down from that, 13, you have to have almost double the Earth's population to keep it going. That's a Ponzi scheme. They happened over and over again, and uh, he had a big one. Truth of the matter is, I don't know much about Bernie Madoff, but I do know about another one that came our way, and this one here got me a reputation with some people. Um, was part of a ministry, and they decided that uh, they heard of this, that you could put your money in. It was called Greater Ministries International Church. That this was just for Christian organizations. And it's a Christian organization that works with prostitutes and feeds street people, and it has gold mines and diamond mines in Liberia. Uh, It's interesting that... You know, we've sent people there, but they have all of this stuff. And it's in Florida, and it's this big thing. Well, it was a bunch of con men. I didn't know anything about it until I heard this. And it's like, we can invest our ministry money, and in 17 months, it will double. And I'm like, whoa. When I heard about that, my wife heard about it next. Because I'm like, something isn't right here. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so I started doing some research. I had no idea where to start. I literally called, I I can't believe this, our state government responded this quick, but I called Harrisburg, got the right person, and he says, I will come and talk to you personally. I'm like, you got to be kidding. Here was a guy from, and I forget which department it was, I think Securities and Exchange from Pennsylvania. He literally came to the office back here and said, here, let me show you what, what you're dealing with here. And he got out the paperwork from Florida and from Pennsylvania and said, these guys have been banned here and they've been banned here because it's a Ponzi scheme. And so I did my research and found out. And uh, we actually had a presentation made to the board of that particular ministry. And this guy was all this glowing stuff. And they had invested all their children's college fund and their retirement. And guess what they have today? Nothing. Other people were like, oh, yeah, we got this back. We sent in $5,000. We got $10,000 back. And some people actually did get their money back because they got it in the beginning. But within a, a year and a half's time, it went from the greatest thing since sliced bread to totally bankrupt. All these guys and their accomplices are in jail now from anywhere from 13 to 27 years uh, because they were ripping off people. Bad times. People get desperate bad times. People start playing the lottery. That's as bad as this, because you're going to lose. People do all kinds of desperate things, because people pray. Our government preys on people when they operate gambling. People pray on your sympathies. Well, they're a Christian organization. Invest with us. 
By the way, the, there are hundreds of these kinds of things happening all the time. There was a bigger one, New Era, that even Lancaster Bible College and other institutions lost big time money because they invested in something that was pie in the sky. God, you're the only one that can bring this to an end. And he usually does. And he uses government and he uses just it falls under its own weight. But lots of people get hurt. It's really hard when you start thinking of those things not to be fearful. What do I do? Ah, I'm going to take and bury it out in the backyard. Jesus said, don't do that. Don't, don't live in fear. At least you could have put it in the bank and got a little interest back on it. That's what Jesus said in the New Testament. The point is this. We have a couple of things that we can do. We can run. We can fight. We can freeze. Do nothing. Or we can live, in by, live by faith. Live in trust in Jesus Christ. That's what we can do. There's one last sub-point here. Because God sees everything. You'll find this in verse 8. Thou hast taken account of my wonderings. Put my tears in a bottle. Are they not all in thy book? God knows what's going on. That's the only reason you can trust him. Because he knows the beginning and the end. He has a track record that he can be trusted from the past. And if he can be trusted in the past, there's no reason not to trust him today and with the future doesn't mean you don't need to make wise decisions. You do. Just remember, faith isn't just let go and let God. Faith is asking God to help you make right decisions as you take each step. Moment by moment, day by day, decision by decision. Sometimes thought by thought and feeling by feeling. We're asking God to help us, leaving the result to him. That's living by faith. One last point this morning is, Lord, in the midst of all of this, my life is in you. You are my focus. You are the one that I can trust. Let's quickly look, starting at verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. It is so easy when things get really bad, to think God stepped out of business for a while. I'm telling you, David knew it, and you can know it. If you're one of his children, he is for you. Doesn't mean he won't let you go through some tough times. You may see them. You may go through them. But he's for you. He's on your side. In God, whose word I praise... In the Lord, whose word I praise. And it's like he's pulling out all the stops or he's stuttering. One of the two, but he's not. The praise is those clear things that boast in God. But in one, he says, in God, God is Elohim. The strong and faithful one, I praise in his word. The Lord, he's the self-existing one. The one that needs nothing from us. The eternal one. The one that was there from the beginning, the one is there beyond anything we can imagine. And right now. See, because God is strong and faithful, and because he is everywhere all the time present, the self-existing one, he needs nothing from anyone, we can trust him in the midst of that. The Lord is with me. He's in my life. But it continues on in verse 11. In God I have put my trust. Again, not 
God, I'll just let you do. I'm going to freeze and just let you do whatever. No, because trust is and believe and faith is an ongoing action word where he wants us to take the appropriate steps, walking with the Lord, facing a direction, asking him to guide us through all those difficult times. Sometimes it is, as I said before, a step-by-step process. I shall not be afraid. Notice shall is a future. I can look to the future, and I don't need to live in fear. Lord, I don't know if I want to wake up tomorrow morning. I didn't say tomorrow morning is going to be fun. But I can say, Lord, I know you're there. I shall not be afraid. I don't have to fear facing the next day. I can't tell you what's going to happen. But I know he's already there, and you don't have to live in fear. Continuing on, it says, I, what shall, I shall not fear what man can do to me. The highest of all God's creation on this earth. It says, I don't know. Three times it uses the word man, and each time it's a different uh, Hebrew word. It says verse th- uh, in verse 12, it continues on as we finish up. Thy vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to thee, for thou hast delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so I may walk before God in the land of the living. Notice he's not simply saying today, and he's not living in the past. He is living today and looking to the future. And he's saying, Lord, my life, you've delivered my soul from death. That's the miracle of miracles, life from death. So because of that, I know you'll keep my feet from stumbling. So I might have to flee. So I might have to freeze. So I may have to fight. He says, you'll keep my feet from stumbling. Why? That's not controlling you. You're controlling it because you're living in faith. You're depending on him for the strength, the wisdom, the guidance, whatever you need for that next step so that I may walk before the Lord in the light of the living. Wow, I can live in the light. I'm telling you, you look around you, it's dark. Every time somebody says they're going to bail you out, every time somebody says they've got the newest thing that's going to solve all the problems, (laughs) maybe that's what you need to run from. And run to the one who says, in the darkness... In the overwhelming, remember where we started? Lord, I'm overwhelmed. In the land of the overwhelming, I can trust the one who's overwhelmed the darkness. That's who I can trust. I think we need that. I looked at this and said, sermon of the day. Because I look around and I'm not seeing man with too many solutions. (laughs) Every time they have a solution, it gives 10 more problems. And i got to tell you, that's not who I'm going to trust in. But I'll tell you what, I'm not running in fear. I'm not going to sit there and say, I can fight and win it. Maybe I can't. And I'm not sitting there going to doing nothing. But I know one thing. By faith, I can continue to walk before God in the light of the living. He's alive, he's well, and he is before you and is for you. Let's all stand together and take our hymnals. And sing our last out one stanza.